Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new Sony animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. We'll also be taking a look at Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Netflix original film, Roma. We're going to have a conversation about Disney live-action remakes, and we're going to get into some news. Before all of that, Andy, this is our last actual like review episode of the year. I know, we made it. We made it. I don't believe it. Uh, we should tell you up front for those listening at home, our next episode will be right at the beginning of next year. It's going to be in January, so we're going to take a couple weeks off here uh, to spend time with friends and family for the holidays. But when we come back, we're going to be talking about what's coming up in 2019 and doing our top 10 lists of the year. We've been putting ours together individually. We haven't been screen cheating or anything. We don't know what each one's doing. Uh, but let me tell you, Andy, I am struggling. I'm having a lot of trouble putting together a top 10 list yeah same here and we still have some more great films to come out this year we do uh we haven't seen any everything but we've seen a lot and i'm excited to talk about what we like the most i also want to have a moment uh, where we talk about our least favorite film of the year i wanted to do a top five least favorite you pointed out that that would take a long time so credit where it's due we should probably do one uh, but i'm excited about it I, I it's taken a whole year of doing a podcast to talk about our top 10 it's gonna be <laughs> great so look yeah. forward to that next week uh let's get into the news our first story solo uh dis- solo score i'm sorry disqualified from the oscars because somebody forgot to submit it this is actually part of a bigger story about three films that have been disqualified from the oscars we'll get to them in order of importance and we're starting with solo a star wars <laughs> story right. andy can you explain to the good people at home why the solo score was not submitted to the oscars so they Someone messed up, probably in a poor intern somewhere, and so just forgot to send the score to the Academy for voting. The The deadline was November 15th, and they just flat out missed it. Mm. <laughs> Not a whole lot to that. Yeah, pretty simple. Um, hard to believe that Disney could blow that, but uh, here's where they're at, I guess. Yeah, they just they don't want anyone to think about the movie. Credit where it's due, uh, Disney did make a lot of money last year. We're actually going to talk about that in our next story, so stay tuned for exactly how much money they made. made. It's it's pretty shocking. Um, but they were submitting a lot to the Oscars. Black Panther is a contender. For what it's worth, I guess forgetting one category of, of Star Wars isn't so bad, but it is a... Uh, did John Williams do Solo or John Powell? No, did? it was... It's, yeah, someone else. Okay, well, it was still... I don't remember. I can't. I mean, I can't, I can't hum the solo theme for you, but I think it was yeah, no. pretty good for what it's worth, if not forgettable. Yeah. The other uh, two films that we uh, are going to cover, Green Book was missed, which is a shame because Green Book featured a lot of music from Don Shirley. And mm-hmm. can you tell the good people why that was left out? So that's exactly why it was disqualified. Was you have to have a lot of original music, and the the movie uses a lot of the music of Don Shirley and from, from his recordings. And I think they transcribed it and replayed it, recreated it. But it's still you're using someone else's uh, music in the film, so it's kind of like a, a soundtrack as opposed to like original score. And so that's why that that was disqualified. Yes. Also, uh, a lot of it is diegetic sound, which was the reason Birdman got left out of the Oscars as far as score goes a few years ago because the music is played in the movie and because it's a part of the plot and part of the world of the film, it doesn't technically count as soundtrack. It's weird. Um, yeah, but that's, that's really that, bizarre. It's That's the reason they leave it out. Like I said, Birdman got totally snubbed. The last one, the one I am most upset about, Mandy. Uh, Johan Johansson's <laughs> uh, haunting score for Mandy has been left out of the Oscars disqualified. And, and Andy, can you tell me why? 
This is the most upsetting because, like I said before, a lot of times when things are disqualified, it's because there's not enough original music, and that wasn't the case with this one. This was disqualified because it, it violated the the theatrical or the qualifying run is what they call it. So a, a film has to be screened for one week in Los Angeles with three screenings per day before it's available for video on demand or to rent. And apparently they just kind of release them side by side, video on demand and uh, a theatrical release. And so they disqualified it because it, it was available to, to watch, <clears throat> to download or watch video on demand. I'm pretty upset about this. I, I like I liked that movie an awful lot. Um, and, yeah. and I'm 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 particularly bummed, not necessarily because I thought the score was so great. It is a great score, but like going back and listening to it on Spotify, I don't have the same experience as I do with the film. Like Mandy, that movie is so driven by that score. Like if it had other music, it just wouldn't work the same way. And, and like seeing how much the score contributes to the film and then not having it considered as a part of the film when it comes to award consideration. Like, it's, man, it's it's criminal. It's such a cool piece of work. Yeah, and it's such a small technicality, and it's clearly a business decision because it's a very small movie. It's not going to have a big release. They're just trying to make sure they're making their money, and so they did a dual release. Um, it, and, yeah, it, it's sad because Johan Johansson, he was uh, nominated for his score for Arrival. He's also did the score for Prisoners and Sicario which are all brilliant scores, and he's a brilliant composer, and he's no longer with us. He died last year. Um, he was he was 47. Um, so, yeah, this was his kind of last stamp on cinema, and he's not going to get recognized for it, and that's really upsetting. He was also nominated for the Theory of Everything. He was posthumously named Composer of the Year at the 2018 World Soundtrack Awards. Um, yeah, nothing. And, and I, get, I people can argue, hey, Mandy didn't deserve to win. Maybe not, but it absolutely deserved a nomination. It is an incredible score, uh, and I'm I'm really bummed by this one. So that's yeah. it. Lame. I guess. Yeah, the the Oscars are not above reproach. Uh, they're not quite the Golden Globes, but man, oh man, they're they're trying. <laughs> Our next story: Disney makes history with seven billion dollars at the global box office for 2018. Billion with a B. Seven billion dollars with three <laughs> weeks left in the year. That's not like they're not, they're not running out the clock. They got time. Uh, Andy, any any immediate thoughts on this? Uh, so what's interesting is that they beat the previous record, also held by Disney <laughs> from 2016, mm. uh, where they made 7.6 billion. Uh, so it's been a, a, a huge year. Uh, Avenger, Avengers: Infinity War brought in two billion. You also had things like Black Panther and Incredibles two. Um, Jurassic World wasn't Disney, but that was another big uh, money money maker. Yeah, I mean they they've had an incredible year. They continue to set the bar uh, for a lot of modern cinema, and next year is probably going to be even bigger. It's it's really something else. Uh, it's worth noting in foreign markets they collected four point zero seven billion. If you want to get real exact. Um, which is over half that number. So it's not to say, hey, foreign markets are what it's all about. It, for what it's worth, just America cleaned up nearly half. But regardless, we can't underestimate, yeah, how much these films have value in other places. Uh, they, the article goes on to mention, the article out of Variety goes on to mention some other uh, properties of theirs that took in a lot of money. Ant-Man and the Wasp made $622 million. Solo made $393 million, which was an underperformance, but... For what it's worth, it all lights up. And we can't forget the movies they made that didn't do great, because that does make a That's difference. True. Nutcracker in the Four Realms has, has been completely passed over. Like, nobody once saw that movie. And I can't think of any others, because they're also forgettable. Solo. <laughs> Solo made... All right, fair. Uh, so it's not getting Oscars, that's for sure. 
Um, Solo Solo was considered, you know, financially uh, not a failure, but it didn't make near as much money as they. It didn't make Star Wars money. Solo Solo was the one that came out, and they said, "Okay, let's let's step back on our Star Wars stuff." So for what it's worth. It is um, important important to kind of uh, look, looking ahead to next year. It's probably going to be a bit bigger because you have three Mar- Marvel tent poles coming out. You have Captain Marvel, the end or conclusion of Infinity War, or the Avengers saga, mm-hmm. Spider Man Far From Home, Star Wars Episode Nine, and Frozen Two. So these are all Disney. yeah yeah these are all properties that will probably make over a billion dollars each. Yep. And Toy Story Four is in there. Yeah, I'm sure that'll yep. do really well. Um, it, it's it's worth saying. I think I don't want to dig too far in, into it on this, but um, man, I I still feel the same way I did at the beginning of the year. It concerns me when one company is has this much pull in the industry. You know what I mean? Do you feel the same way? Like it, it freaks me out a little bit. And on the one hand, it, it does because it's it's very much nearing a monopoly status. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I, I like when Disney takes over. You know, like they're ta- they've taken over some of Sony's properties, 20th Century Fox. You know, some of these properties that haven't necessarily been handled qu- too well. So in a lot of ways, I'm excited to see what they can do when they really put the right money and the right talent behind uh, some of these properties. Tune in this time next year to find out how much Disney made in 2019. That's right. Stuff. Uh, our last story before we move on to our films. Uh, movies starring women earn more than male-led films, a study finds. You found this article, Andy. Fill me in, please. Uh, so this is from the, the New York Times, and uh, they did this big study uh, looking at movies from 2014 to 2017, um, and they found that uh, w- those that had female leads earned more. And and this is it's important to to mention it's only slightly more. It's not like... A huge amount, but it is more, and and this was for films that were on small budgets, under ten million or a hundred million. Um, and so, go ahead. go ahead. No, no, no. <laughs> well, this shouldn't really be surprising to anyone because it's it's not. People are looking at this the wrong way. They're looking thinking like it's a man versus woman thing. It's not. What it is, it's about representation. Half the population is women. So if you make films that appeal to, or if you don't make films that it that don't appeal to half the population, then of course that's not going to make it you. When you start appealing, having wider appeal, you're going to get more people in. A really good example is even our own podcast. When we review films that have female leads, we get more female listeners. Um, examples are disobedience, huge jump in female listenership and the favorite. It, you know, becomes about 50, 50. So it's, it's just about appealing to your audience. And I think a lot of it is very subconscious. I don't think people are actively, avoiding films with male leads if you're a woman or vice versa it's just kind of subconscious and also it's just a numbers game because it said only about a quarter of films made to have female leads whereas three quarters the other three quarters are male so you you know you're just not appealing to that half with as many movies unfortunately i think there are probably people out there who avoid films starring women just because uh i I haven't met any of them i hope uh um, but i'm sure they exist you're absolutely right um, people don't shy away from movies with female leads. Like, if anything, it's the opposite. I think a big part of the reason is because these movies are designed in the mold of what we know, things we're familiar with, right? Action or superhero or movies where, where we have a hero that is now a heroine. Uh, but they scratch an itch that we're unfamiliar with, you know, a protagonist that's coming at it from a different angle. Similar uh, in a lot of ways to how Black Panther approached the superhero film. 
It's just yeah. different enough, but it just falls in line with what we know. It's exciting. It's something we want to see. It changes the formula. It's different. And that's ultimately good for everybody, especially women in film. So I'm very yeah, pleased and to it, see this. And it's, you know, it's good for the bottom line. That, yeah. That's the other, other thing is, uh, you know, it was a very old and sexist attitude of, oh, if you have a female lead, men won't go see it or, you know, it, it doesn't perform as well financially. And they're finding out that that's completely false. Um, good example is Wonder Woman. Uh, Amanda, who's been on the show before, uh, she told me, you know, the one scene w- in Wonder Woman where she kind of crosses the no man's land and she has her shield up against like the machine gun. She was, she told me about how she was so moved by this scene because it was the first time she'd ever seen like a female superhero like herself represented on screen. You know, to to quote uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, we want to see ourselves in our stories. <laughs> wow, solid uh, Joel, Joel, anything wrong quote. <laughs> I, I agree. Christine said the same thing about the same scene, but honestly, in a different way, of course. But yeah, she was very inspired by that. I thought this is an interesting note. The research also found that films that pass the Bechdel test, which is a test that measures whether two female characters have a conversation about something other than a man in a movie, outperformed those that flunked it. Interesting. I don't actually know if there's anything to that because I feel like general audiences don't even know what the Bechdel test is. But for what it's right. worth, like, that's an interesting note. Uh, that's That's kind of neat. Yeah, well, uh, what that says to me is that, you know, when you make real real uh, characters that um, that appeal to everyone and reflect society and not just leading towards, like, the male fantasy, you're going to, again, it's about appeal. Mm. Very pleased with the news. And I'm hoping 2019 uh, continues the trend, carries that torch. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think where it could really improve is, again, it said only a quarter of films uh, had female leads. So that definitely needs to be closer to a half. It needs to be a half. Agreed. Speaking of half, we should probably move into the first film of our show. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this. You've agreed to let me take the summary. The film is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I can teach you to be Spider-Man. Mm, I love this burger. So delicious. You have money, right? I'm not very liquid right now. I think you're going to be a bad teacher. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse tells the story of Miles Morales, a uh, very normal young man in New York City. His father is a cop. His mother is a stay-at-home mom. They live in Brooklyn. Uh, He was going to public school, but he's since been transferred to a private school where he's pretty much out of his skin. Uh, He doesn't feel super comfortable, but he is who he is. He is uh, in very traditional Spider-Man format, bitten by a spider. He gains spider powers. And after after gaining these, uh, runs into uh, one Peter Parker, who he discovers is from a another universe, and then he has to work with Peter Parker and other spider characters, I should say, from other universes to close a <laughs> multi-dimensional rift in reality and save the New York he calls home and all the other spider <laughs> people call home. That is the right. summary for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Andy, I'll just be, cut right to you. What did you think <laughs> of... And, and keep it light, because I really want to talk about it. Uh, so so sure, take it easy sure, here sure. at the beginning. What did you think of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? Um, so I was really blown away. I, I really enjoyed it on a, on, a, on a story level, on a character level, on an animation level. It's just something else. You know, DC has been also making animated films kind of straight to DVD. And they're, they're pretty good. I think they're actually better than their, their films. But they're made in such an old style, in a like 2D hand-drawn style. And Into the Spider-Verse is just a whole new level. It's like a living comic book. Um, you know, because you get it bridges the gap between animation and then the comic. Like I said, you get panels, you have uh, pop-ups of people talking. 
Um, and I don't, I don't want to get too much into it, but I really enjoyed it as a comic book fan, as a film fan. It had a little something for everyone. It was really compelling, a heartwarming story, lots of laughs, lots of action. Um, I can't say enough good things. Uh, but what did you think? I was stunned by this movie. Uh, it was really, really good stuff. I, I figured it might be pretty good uh, when I saw the first trailer for it way back earlier, earlier in the year. Uh, and I, 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 I remember... The next week we did a show and I was like, dude, did you see the trailer for this Spider-Man movie? Like, it looks so rad and I don't think you'd seen it yet. And then you saw it and you were like, this looks really cool. And then I wanted, I remember going on this whole rant at the office about how DC should be doing what Sony's doing because yeah, their animation yeah. blows them out of the water. And you pointed out that DC movies are still good in their own right. They still have their place. Um, but I was just so impressed by the look of this movie. Uh, seeing it come to fruition in a full product, I, I was in no way disappointed by its presentation it is a stunning film i can see why the hype is real it very much is it does have a couple of hiccups and i want to break <laughs> down what those are before it's worth spider-man into the spider-verse is really 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 good uh and it is a real cool flick and we should talk about why the first place to do that i think is of course in its presentation you already started with that this movie doesn't look like anything else i've seen before yeah why is that let's talk about it <laughs> well so it's just man it's just visually in in so engaging uh one of the things that you can do in animation you can create worlds and create scenes that you can't do in traditional film even with all the cgi we have now um and, and it's just it's mind-blowing the colors the panels like i said it you look like it looks like a comic book a lot it has like the print lines and the print dots from the yeah old, like, the, the 50s, dot shading 40s. and yeah it's got hatching and, and and a lot of like old comic book shader style uh over like a cell shaded look i think the animation was i it's got to be computer animated and then they yeah, cut out like, like the lego movie it's computer animated and they cut out frames to make it look like jittery to make it look almost hand animated mm -hmm. and it, it like i said it bridges the gap because you get a lot of comic book stuff like still panels uh voices popping up or text on the screen and then you get of course lots of normal animation like any other like a pixar film or it or illumination in any of those so it's and then there's there's scenes of incredible action, but you know, like we mentioned, this interdimensional stuff. Uh, there's some really great fight scenes, and it's it's visually just overwhelming. It does a lot with color, especially towards the end of the film. Like it's got some incredible, vibrant, and radiant colors. Um, it's some really cool stuff. It reminded me in a lot of ways, as far as color grading goes, of something like Mandy. Just incredible to look at, um, almost hallucinatory at times on screen. Like yeah. it, it is really stunning, um, and it is entirely all the way through from its very beginning, like opening title cards to its credit sequence, which is stunning on its own. Like it, it, it is, yeah. the presentation of this movie is so outstanding. It is the first and last word when you talk about it because it is so interesting. Um, we should talk about the writing. Uh, this is written by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the writers of That's 21 right. Jump Street and the Lego movie. They had a couple other helpers, but for the most part, I think they were kind of doing the groundwork, mm -hmm. and it shows. The writing of this movie is pretty good. There's a lot I like about it, but it's got a couple hiccups. What did you think? Yeah, I, I like the writing. Uh, the characters are written and developed really well. It, it gives you a lot of heart. It makes you really care about 
everyone in the in the universe, not just uh, Miles Morales, but his father, his family, his friends. It really digs you in, um, and there's there's a lot of laughter, a lot of humor, a lot of jokes. Um, my my theater was about half full, but it was lots of laughter in the theater. Yeah, uh, it's funny. My theater was about a quarter full. And there were moments where, like, it would cut to silence, like a, like a deadpan gag that, you know, are featured in movies like the Lego Movie and 21 Jump Street. I think Phil Lord and Chris Miller are fans. And, like, just Christine would laugh. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's like, ah! like, it's just, you know, it's one of those movies. Like, it's, it's a laugh out loud, out loud kind of picture. The dialogue is fantastic. Uh, the only issue I really had in the writing was in pacing. It's something I mentioned at the, at, the, at the top of the show before we got started. The first act starts off so strong. It almost reminded me of like the way a Pixar movie is written. Like it establishes Miles and his world and the characters in it, his dad, his mom, and him going to school. Like all of that feels so real and the dialogue feels like it's pulled right out of real life. I mean, the way he talks to people on the street, his friends, his family, all of that feels fantastic and it makes Miles feel so grounded in reality. Right when the multidimensional stuff happens, though, the movie really hits the gas and you got to hang on tight because it, it, yeah. it starts to move real fast to incorporate five different Spider-Man characters and one Spider-Woman. Like it, so you got to watch out for that. But if you know it's coming, it's good stuff. But I got so sucked in by the animation and the look of it, I kind of forgot. It's about 20 minutes in before I was like, oh, yeah, this is more than just Miles Morales' story. Like <laughs> yeah, I got exactly. real invested in it. Um, and that doesn't necessarily hurt it. If anything, I think that makes it a lot more exciting. Um, but it was it was it was like whiplash in the theater for me. For sure, um, sure. On top of the animation, did you have an experience like that, or what do you think? I, I mean, I think because I'm so familiar with comic books, uh, I kind of went along with it. But that's yeah. kind of what I wanted to get into next is as a little bit of the plot. And one thing I've said before is that you know comics deal with a lot of kind of elseworld or other dimensions or other universes or parallel universes. That's a real common thing. But it's something that I, I feel may not work on live action film. But but so animation is a place to do it, and that's what we get. We get these kind of other alternate versions of Spider-Man and there's this great sequence that gets repeated where you know Peter Parker says or Miles Morales first has a you know my story and it goes through this montage of oh I was bit and then I'm a hero and then this and it, it does that sequence several times for each of the different Spider-Man and, it, and it's a good good gag and it, it's what's interesting to me is that it, Spider-Man is becoming as commonplace as something like Batman. You know all the characters. You don't. They don't have to handhold. They don't have to tell you. Oh, this is Mary Jane. This is his. This is his girlfriend. This is Aunt May. This is his. Like you know who everyone is is already, and that's why we can go into new areas and new new realms because you're already familiar with the property. Because I swear to God, if I have to see <laughs> Batman's parents die one more time, we yeah. get it. It was, it was really charming because, yeah, I mean, they knew that, we, okay, how are we going to fit in six different origin stories in one movie that are all real similar to each other? Because they're all Spider-Man or Spider-Woman, and they all have to end with somebody getting bit and somebody getting powers, somebody fighting crime. Like, they cover all of that, so they use that for each Spider-Man as almost like a chapter motif in a Tarantino film. It'll cut back yeah. to it. Okay, here's, here's this. Um, it's pacing for the movie and it kind of breaks it up a little bit and helps you figure out, okay, here's what this Spider-Man is about. And I appreciate the way they blow right through it when they first, like when you get to Peter Parker, the, of course, the one you know already because you've seen the three different iterations of Spider-Man and seen the cartoon and read the comic, like they just blow right through it. They're like, yep, you already know the great power comes great responsibility. You already know the Uncle Ben thing. Great. Let's move on. I mean, it takes, it's like 15 seconds of screen time because they know. And that's a good, like, 
it, it, it makes the audience feel like they're in on the joke. You know, it's a good wink, yeah. wink, nudge, nudge. It's an acknowledgement of, hey, we know who you are and where you're coming from. And that helps us connect with the film better and the characters in it, which was great. Um, I did want to talk about the presentation of the different Spider-Men and the Spider-Villains because they all look different. And we should talk about that. Whereas a character sure, sure. like Spider-Noir, which is Nicolas Cage's Spider-Man, is entirely black and white. Spider-Ham, played by John Mulaney, is like super cartoony. And that that clashed, but in a really charming way that helped it, helped it feel fresh. I felt the same way about the villains because they're a little different in this too. And there's a lot yeah. of them. Yeah, and, and if you're going to introduce, you know, some different Spider-Man, I mean, you, you really got to go out there and bring something different. And so, like, again, the the what is essentially the Looney Tunes version and then this, like, neo-noir version, it's just, it's so far out there that it, it works so well. Because if it was too close to Spider-Man as we know him, it would be kind of be boring. I agree. And, and I loved Spider-Gwen, and I forget the name of the spider MC three seventy or whatever the one that was like a, like an anime character yeah uh, I can't remember I, I can't remember <laughs> she didn't get a whole lot of, I know her name was Penny I got that I, yeah that, Penny that, Parker that, yeah Penny Parker uh you know Peter Parker uh, Miles Morales like they're all so interesting I I do wish I had gotten a little bit more screen time with some of the later ones specifically I I, I really thought Spider Ham was cool I was really into the John Mulaney character and and I wish he'd gotten more time but. What's worth? How much could you possibly put in? You know, ultimately it centers around Miles Morales and, and his kind of development as a Spider-Man. Um, so yeah. you can't. It's not a movie about Spider-Ham. Like it can't be. You can't have that much in there. But <laughs> I, I enjoyed what they did with it just enough. They gave it just enough time where I feel like okay, that was really cool. And ultimately, um, while they did a great job of kind of wrapping things up, if there is another movie like this, and I would certainly hope there is, I would be excited to see it. I would like to go see more Miles Morales. Yeah, it, it's definitely it are the sequel's already in the works, um, and like like you said, the story of of him developing as as a hero is really important. And this is what has a lot of heart because he has his own things to over overcome. Like the other Spider people are like veteran heroes, and he's just kind of a noob. And they're like, "Well, you can't really tag along; you're gonna get hurt." And so that, that's a kind of a big deal because his whole thing is fighting against being an outsider that that's what he's trying to overcome in his personal life at school and you know and it's also displayed there also there there's a lot of kind of mature themes like the the peter parker from another universe has a really kind of tragic thing going on and that's what's interesting they all have tragic backstories but they're all tweaked just a little bit Mm -hmm. yeah and that was really cool And, and each dimension looked so unique and vibrant and interesting like they all looked so cool spider gwen's was like this neon pink and white thing peter parker's was very normal spider noir was 1950s all black and white like the look of it all seems so fresh and interesting that anytime you got a peek at one of those universes i I wanted to see more and that's ultimately what this film accomplishes so well is i just want more of it i want more of the animation i want more of the look and the feel and the writing like it reminds me of the way X-Men Days of Future Past kind of reopened the possibilities of the X-Men universe by retconning and saying, okay, we're starting fresh with this batch here. Like, that's what this right. felt like. Like, I can't wait to see what they do next in the universe of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, and, and to kind of finish up, th- that's what I love is that now that we've had 10 years of Marvel and comic book films, we've established the groundwork for a lot of these pe- people, and we can start really getting into some experimental places the way that, that comic books do now. Because right now, Jane Foster is Thor, or 
uh, Iron Man is actually Iron Heart, who's a, a young black woman. Um, X-23, the Wolverines. Like, we can start getting into these kind of newer and kind of more diverse and more representational versions of um, comic book heroes. And I never, it never felt heavy-handed because I know that's the thing that always comes out with announcements of characters like this. I remember when Miles Morales got announced in the comics, people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like a, a, a young black Latin American playing Spider-Man? Like, how is that going to work? And like in this movie, it, it is... It's almost like Winston Zeddemore being black in Ghostbusters. It's coincidental. It is never like a hinge. It is never a hang up. Like he is just as much Spider-Man as everybody else. And it makes it easy to connect with the story of Spider-Man that we kind of already know just in a slightly different way. But that's enough. That's enough for us to get rooted in it and get invested in it and root for the character. It's 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 fascinating stuff. And I can't believe how well it works. Uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller did a brilliant job. Of putting it on screen. Also, it's three directors, which is something I, I love to, to, to uh, uh, hammer movies for when they have more than like two directors. And this one had three, and it was great. Um, mm-hmm. That didn't slow it down at all. Any other thoughts for final recommendations? Um, I kind of wish that Phil Lord and Chris Miller <laughs> had done episode nine now. I'm mean, excited to see what they could have done. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Or what they where they would have gone with Solo as Star Wars stories. Really interesting stuff. Um right. I, one one other mention while I'm thinking about it, uh, I did see this movie in 3D, which is the first oh, nice. movie I've seen in 3D in a very long time. I thought it might hurt it. Uh, arguably, it was better, and I haven't seen it in 2D to say, hey, it's it's definitely better than than the the than the 2D. But if you are stuck with a 3D screening and you're a little nervous about how it's going to look, it was great. It was it was great. So don't don't let that hurt how, how what you think the movie might be like. It yeah. was really enjoyable. I saw it in 2D and I definitely want to see it in th- in 3D because I was I, you know I was thinking the whole time this would be incredible on, on a 3D screen and it's so few movies use that medium well but this one definitely does so if you get that chance um, definitely take it yeah it is it is rarely distracting if anything like it just helps you get deeper into what is already incredible animation um, great music in this I know I'm just wrapping up little things here great music great callbacks to the history of Spider-Man it featured footage from the old cartoon which is really neat a great post credit sequence you should stick around for um, anything else for recommendations that's all I can think off the top of my head um, well you mentioned good good soundtrack yep. uh, yeah excellent soundtrack excellent soundtrack really cool uh, available on Spotify definitely listen to it once or twice so uh, go check that out Andy, would you recommend Spider-Man Into the (laughs) Spider-Verse? Absolutely. It's got something for everyone. You know, you can take the kids, the family. Uh, It's got a lot in there for adults, for comic book film or comic book fans, film fans. Um, It's a great movie. And it's I mean, there's so much good stuff right now out during the holidays. So definitely try and catch it. I cannot recommend this movie enough. It might be my favorite animated film of the year. It might make my top 10 list. I get why articles have been coming out where people have been saying this might be the sleeper hit of the Oscars because it comes out right at the end of the year and it is stunning work. I mean, it is everything it is advertised to be and more. It is funny. It is charming. It is kind hearted. It hits hard where it needs to. And ultimately I, I, Oh God, the animation is so cool. Like Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse <laughs> is so neat. I don't know if it's the best Spider-Man movie, but it's up there. It's real good. It's really good. Is. Like, go check this movie out. You will not be disappointed. Take a date. Take your family. Take your friends. It's fun for everybody. It's a real cool movie. Oh, man. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. Uh, we should talk about our uh, our next segment. Uh, something I'm always excited to talk about this week in particular because I think we have a really good topic. Andy, please take it away. This is the death of cinema. So uh, what we're going to be talking about this week is uh, are Disney live action remakes unnecessary? So we, I've seen a number of articles that came out because Disney is just going full full steam of head full throttle. In, yeah. yeah, in in their remakes. So in 2019 we have live action Dumbo, live action Aladdin, live action Lion King, and then you know there's things like Mulan, um, 101 Dalmatians, and the list goes on and on. Basically they're digging up every character they can find they're gonna sure. that broomstick from fantasia is gonna have its own origin story fantasia will get a live action eventually <laughs> i'm sure um and so the question is are these remakes really i mean they're obviously a cash grab but are they really necessary are they really giving us much in film are they even actually live action um so uh zach what do you uh why don't we start with you what are your thoughts i appreciate you opening this up for me uh, i think it's easy to write this one off I do. I, I think they're. If you're listening to this at home, I think you're thinking to yourself, "Come on, of course they're unnecessary." Hear Bunch me out. Of D- Disney haters here. Yeah. Right. Exactly. He- hear us out. Uh, it's not that they're unnecessary because they made seven billion dollars last year. It's not that they're unnecessary because they don't need the money. We should talk about what they accomplish as movies, what they accomplish in remaking these, and whether or not the juice is worth the squeeze. Is it worth remaking movies that are already beloved classics? Disney masterpieces, as they're called. And they're going, I mean, they're digging deep. Snow White came out in the 40s, and we've moved on since then. But, I mean, it's only a matter of time before we get live-action Snow White. We're not that far off. But I know they've been doing live-action for a little while. You can look at something like uh, Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Like, they've been been trying, all right? They've been trying to get this off the ground. Uh, And and they've tried with rides. Uh, uh, The Haunted Mansion was a total bomb starring Eddie Murphy, but Pirates of the Caribbean turned into a huge franchise. Like, Disney knows they can get money out of this stuff. It's just a matter of doing it right. And the question I have is, are they doing their movies justice? Are they doing... Are they doing these movies the correct way? Or are they just doing it for the money, which arguably they don't even need? That's what I would argue is makes them unnecessary. Andy, what do you think? <laughs> uh, this is going to be a tough one. So my main issue is that I feel like they're not bringing anything new to the table. Like people have pointed out, like the Lion King trailer that we saw, it's like, you know, shot for shot. Well, it's like, well, then I'll just go watch the classic from 20 years ago. Why, why do I want to go see... A, a computer animated version of something I've already seen. Like I want to see, I go to the movies to see something new and see something interesting, but you know, the audiences are, you know, saying something different. The, the closer these movies get to just being exact replicas, the more people seem to go. So that's why they're doing it. Um, but yeah, it doesn't add much. If, if you, all you're doing is copying it with a better coat of paint. And they're not necessarily, yeah, I agree. And, and, but in a lot of cases, they're not necessarily just copying. That's part of the charm uh, I liked about Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. It's a spin. It's a different look at it. And I thought that was sure. cool. But these aren't that. I remember watching uh, Beauty and the Beast, the, the remake starring uh, Emma Watson, and I was stunned at how close it is to the original. Like, But it's just different enough that it's live action. But really, ultimately, that's the only difference. It is the same music. They are the same sets. They are the same outfits. Like... They are painstakingly putting these things back together. My issue is, yeah, exactly what you said. For what? Ultimately, what does that change? If you're just making the same movie again, but in a different medium, what are you accomplishing? 
are you accomplishing anything at all? Like, is there really a point? Is that necessary or is it unnecessary? The yeah. issue Art- I, <laughs> the issue, artistically no, artistically no. In my the issue I have with this uh, brings me back to the argument for Pixar films. Something, something I, I, I at least older Pixar films I hold very near and dear. Uh, part of the charm of something like Toy Story, right, is that when it came out. That movie couldn't be told in any other medium other than computer animation. You can't make a play of Toy Story and have it work the way the movie does. You can't have a comic book of Toy Story and have it work the way the movie does. Like, it's such a unique thing, and it works in that form of animation. Now, that animation may not have aged well because, you know, computer graphics are getting better. But in the case of hand-drawn animation, that stuff ages great because it it doesn't... fade or crack with age you know the, the the actors don't get older you can't look at pictures of snow white from the 40s and go oh god now she looks terrible she yeah. she, she it is pristine like it, it is it is it is a film in amber like it, it, it's not going anywhere and it still holds the same value because of that at least to me nostalgically now for new audiences that may not be the case but andy what do you think about that well, from the video that that we watched, because that's what someone made a a video called "I Hate Everything." Yeah, I was gonna say that'll be "I Hate Everything" on YouTube. Made a great video about this. You check it out. Right. Well, one of the things they pointed out is in traditional animation or even computer animation, one thing you can do is a lot with faces. You know, as you have these like human characters or anthropomorphic characters, you can you can um, create expression through their anthropomorphized face. But you can't really do that when it's CG, when you have a very realistic-looking clock and then you try to put a face on it. You lose kind of all semblance of facial expressions because you just you can't do both. It's one or the other. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think we're definitely lose some, losing something because of all the, the CGI. And what I would like to see is if they ma- if they remade these in Pixar style or just or into the Spider-Verse style, something that's computer generated, but not just, you know, tried to make like real life. Right. I mean, that that's part of the thing when you look at something like the old Lion King versus the trailer for the new one. Or, or better yet, I should probably talk about Beauty and the Beast because we actually have the full film for that rather than Lion King, which I have not seen the film for. Like, old Beauty and the Beast, I mean, the animation was stunning, and the colors were vibrant and new, and they used these huge splashes of yellow on, on Belle's dress, and, and these you know, big splashes of blue on, 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 on the Beast's clothes, and, like, you just aren't gonna get that in live action. You can't. Like, you can't have that unnatural color, because in the original animation, it's unnatural. Like, it isn't that. But that's part of what the experience is about. That's part of what makes it so intriguing as a film. That's part of what makes it pop off the screen, similar to Spider-Man versus Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. You're just not going to get that again. And when you're trying to do it in computer animation, like it looks even more unrealistic because you're already trying to match realism. You're going for photorealism, right? You're just right. not going to get there. And ultimately, you just miss the mark. Like You're not going to get what you're going for. And if they're trying to look at a character like Lumiere, right, the, the candlestick, and the original Beauty and the Beast, like, he was based off a of candlestick, but he was, I mean, a very anthropomorphized candlestick. The new version tries to build off what a candlestick might look like, plus kind of that, and ultimately you end up with this just kind of mess that doesn't look like anything realistic. <laughs> yeah. uh, and is clearly computer animation and kind of looks awful. And, and just like the original Toy Story, in 20 years, is going to look terrible. People are going to look back and think, God, this looked horrible. What were they thinking, you know? But the yeah, original I mean, hand-drawn so, animation looks perfect. 
some some of the Beauty and the Beast stuff looks bad now. Like it hasn't aged well f- yeah. from like two two years. Um, it, that brings up another point of are these really live action? If it's like ninety nine percent CGI, especially the new Lion King, which is clearly not <laughs> not live action. At least like the Mowgli or Beauty and the Beast had an actor, a live actor, but. I don't think the Lion King is going to other than voice actors. Yeah, I've, I've talked with a couple people about this. By a couple people, I mean mostly Christine. I would argue it's not. It, like, if there's no live action in it, if it's all computer animated, how how is that live action? That's like a it's like saying a Pixar film is live action. It isn't. It just isn't. I get it's trying to recreate live action, but it's not. Like, it's, it's not there, you know? So I don't I don't know what exactly we're calling it at this point. Like, it's still an animated film. It, it hasn't changed. Um... And that's just the exclusive case for the Lion King. And for all I know, they could have a real baboon in a shot somewhere. Like, and maybe that you know crosses the line, and now it's live action. But I look at the Lion King, and I mean, wh- where would that movie be categorized in the Oscars? Would you put that under drama, or would you put it under best animated film? It'll probably go unanimated. And therefore, right, yeah, like, exactly. ultimately, what are we doing? And, and, and I hate everything. Made a great point. Uh, you look at something like Wreck-It Ralph two. It had that great scene in there uh, with a couple scenes, I should say featuring all the Disney princesses. And they're like fun, cartoony versions of them in CGI. Why not remake them that way? Like, why not stick with the animation thing and kind of stick with that bubbly, bubbly fun, classic look, um, but make it look like something like Tangled or Frozen? Why not do that, you know? And, and right. ultimately, um, I, I have a reason as to why I think, but I'm curious, Andy, you got any thoughts? I mean, I think they've just stumbled on a different way to repackage the same thing. And it's like, oh, it's not animated. It's live action. I would argue might, it might be budget, you know, or, or they, they want the clout of uh, something like actors and actresses who were popular at the time, like Emma Watson. Oh, hey, we put sure. her in a movie. Come see come see what Hermione Granger's up to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's, it's short-sighted. And, like, Disney didn't used to be that way. And ultimately, no, no, exactly. ultimately, I think the biggest offense of these movies is that they don't seem to capture what made the originals great and that they, they are a masterwork in creative expression. Like the original films weren't made to make a paycheck. They were made because they were like passionate stories that these creators believed in and they, they wanted to tell them in the best, most expressive way possible. These remakes, they're a cash in and everybody knows it. Right, right. Yeah, uh, you know, when you think of Beauty and the Beast, you think of the score and the animation and the storyline and the the myth that it's based on, and it, it all comes together to create this really magical thing. And, I mean, you think we had, I think it was Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King, like, wh- one one year after each other, mm-hmm. all, or, like, all, all in a row. And it was like, man, that was an impressive run. And it's like, why can't why can't we make something original? Right. Instead, we're just remaking what we did. And... Ultimately, like I said, I think they're unnecessary because creatively they don't offer anything in the way of of doing anything new or different or breaking ground like the originals did. And they're just to make money for a studio that clearly doesn't need it in the first place. Mm -hmm. They they are pointless. There's no reason for them to exist. I I would argue they're not presenting uh, the the films to a new audience because, again, the hand-drawn animation has not aged poorly. It has aged like fine wine. I don't just say that because I'm nostalgic for them. I truly believe that. Um, I think they're unnecessary. What do you think? No, I, no, I, I agree. It. What I would like to see is either new spins or new takes or 
a sequel to one of these sort like Lion King 2 <laughs> something like that go. something that, that that continues uh the story or just gives me something new and this is why I really enjoyed uh Mowgli Legend of the Jungle that we talked about last week on Netflix because it wasn't the Disney version because it was a different story it was darker it was more mature it was more complex it gave me a different spin on a story I was I was familiar with and that's what I I'm, I look forward to I want to see something different when I go to the cinema agree and Disney has everything they've built is being different. And it's disappointing to see them just do this. Um, uh, they, they can do more. They're capable of more. And they don't see that. They're looking at dollar signs. And ultimately, um, that makes these films completely unnecessary. So that's our Disney films unnecessary. Disney live action films, excuse me. Our Disney live action films unnecessary. Uh, if you have thoughts on this, if you think we're crazy, I would love to hear the other side of this. I would love to hear a defense of these films. Uh, I, I'd be very excited to to engage that. Um, not trying to provoke anybody. I'm genuinely like I'd, I'd like <laughs> I'd like to hear what you think. Uh, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're around. Uh, please let us know. I can't wait to hear it. And lastly, we should get to our final film. Of the year, this is actually now that I think about it, not just this episode. Andy, you graciously agreed to take the summary on this. Please take it away. Roma. So, this is the latest film by, by Alfonso Cuaron who uh, previously did Gravity five years ago. I can't believe he hasn't made a film in five years. Um, also did one of the Harry Potter films, as well as Children of Men. And uh, this is unique because this is coming out on... This just came out on Netflix and also had some theatrical theatrical release that will, it will be eligible for Oscars. So it's, it's a unique kind of uh, release. Um, anyways, though, the story is it takes place in the 1970s in Mexico. It centers around this uh, upper middle class family. Uh, you have the, uh, the doctor, his wife, their four kind of rambunctious children, and their two servants slash maids. And that's who is the, the center of the story is uh, one of the maids. Her name is uh, Cleo, played by Yelitsa Aparicio. And this is the only thing she has ever done. And uh, I believe she's like an indigenous uh, person from from Mexico. Um, anyway, so the story, it takes place, like I said, in this household. And very early on, you realize that uh, there's trouble with the marriage between the uh, the doctor and his wife. He kind of disappears. He says he's going on a business trip. We all know it's not a business trip and that maybe he's going for cigarettes and not ever <laughs> coming back. Um, meanwhile, uh, I want to say Yelitsa Cleo, the, uh, the maid, helps you know she helps raise the kids because they're kind of wild they're kind of unruly she's a big part of the family not just uh, a help uh helper um but then she runs into her own problems as well she ends up getting uh pregnant by her her friend's cousin named uh fermin who leaves as soon as he finds out that she's pregnant he literally kind of abandons her uh at a theater while they're watching a movie and so that's just kind of the setup for the film and the rest of it kind of tracks like their struggles as women uh in this time period as well it's set in the backdrop of this political turmoil of the 1970s in mexico um it's a beautiful film it's in black and white it's subtitled it's mo it's in spanish 
Um, it's definitely an art film. It is long. It is challenging. Uh, I've really liked it, and I'll talk about more about that. But first, uh, Zach, give us your thoughts. I'm very anxious to talk about this movie. <laughs> uh, it is, in a word, in two words, uh, it's bold cinema. It is some bold cinema, <laughs> Roma. Uh, and that's that's good, um, but not good for everybody. This is a this is this is a passion project of Quran. This is something I, I know he's wanted to do for a long time. It's in his hometown. It speaks towards his heritage and who he is as a person. Uh, it, it is something that is slow and it's paced and it's personal, um, and it's made with all of the expertise and a lot of the film knowledge that he has. There's a lot of tributes to uh, black and white film that there's there's some kurosawa stuff in here there's there's a lot of french new wave that i was reminded of things like uh godard um i i liked a lot about this movie as as a film critic but as a viewer as an audience (laughs) member man did i struggle to get through roma it is it is not made for me man i i i thought it was dull i thought it was boring i uh, no lie i'm not afraid to admit this on this show straight up dozed off at one point and then woke back up and rewound the film back to where i was after it's i got too bold for made you a cup of coffee i had to get up and take a walk like it is it is agony as far as interesting pacing goes it's deep maybe too deep and i want to yeah. talk about why andy what did you think of roma so uh, I really liked it, but it did take me a while to get into it, probably about a half hour. And part of this we mentioned is how it was released. Like this is a film that you need to see in a theater, focused on what's happening on on screen, l- listening with big loudspeakers because the soundtrack and the sound of the film is very important. There's no score, but it's just lots of uh, just sound editing and uh <laughs> just sound from within the world of the film that's important to watch. And it, it's hard to get into it at home is what what I found. And I, I was a little tired when I started it. It was, you know, it was a lazy Sunday afternoon. It was right after lunch. So, you know, I I had a hard time focusing initially. But once it's it got going about 30 minutes in, I really, really enjoyed it. Because at its heart, it's about the struggle of of women and also different classes because these women, both uh, Cleo and the uh, the wife of the doctor, they've both been abandoned by men, and both uh, they parallel each other. They're left with uh, the burden of of children supporting their children, trying to convince their children that their father hasn't left. In the meantime, having to worry about what they're going to do financially, and so it's really about how these women kind of bond together because you have uh in addition to cleo and uh senorita sofia you have uh the grandmother character as well who helps and and they all they all have different strengths and they help each other in different ways like cleo is better with the children than uh senorita sofia or the grandmother they're really unruly but they kind of listen a little bit better to them and then you know, the older women or the, you know, they come from wealthier backgrounds. So they also reach out and help uh, Cleo. She's dealing with this pregnancy and her father, who's uh, the baby daddy, who's who's abandoned her. I think this movie also has a really cool um, backdrop, similar to how Suspiria was set against the Holocaust and the Berlin Wall and kind of a war-torn yes. Germany. Or The Favorite was set against a, a, a war-torn Britain, France. This movie has a really interesting backdrop in the Mexican Revolution. Uh, in the 70s, there is violence in this movie. 
there, there is, um, I don't want to say just straight homicide, but like, frankly, there's a little bit of it. And it, yeah. it looks at all of that through this kind of fascinating lens that's just pulled back, almost like a fly on the wall. And the way Koran films this is just that. He's constantly on a tripod, locked down, a lot of slow pans, lots of those classic Koran long takes that I love. Yes, yes. But I also love motion in Koran films, which is something <laughs> he's great at. Steadicam, uh, Harry Potter and the Prison of Azkaban, gravity, like a lot of motion and movement in that. And this doesn't have that it, it just crawls in the way it's made mm -hmm. and also in its pacing like I, like you pointed out all of these characters that are very interesting very good but ultimately the movie looks at them from far away and you never really get inside their heads at best you get cleo but you never really get what she's thinking you just have to assume you have to make presumptions right and that 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 made it a struggle for me to connect with these characters and again they're females and you're right this is a very female driven story um but I don't think that's the that's really ultimately the reason I, I had a tough time. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's definitely a challenging film. It's like I said earlier when we were talking. It's like eating your vegetables. It's good for you, but it's gonna, not going to go down easy. It, and sometimes, uh, you know, good films are like this. Sometimes films are actually more enjoyable after you've seen them and can talk about them than they are during the experience. My the first thing I can think of when when I think about this is um, Phantom Thread from last year which I love talking about and reading about, but I, Lord, if I never have to watch that movie again. <laughs> because yeah. it was very long, and I found it slow, and I found it boring, but I, you know, when I read about it and I understood it more, I was like, wow, this is really brilliant. And I think that Quaron's done some of that here, but it's, it's, it's challenging. It's going to take the, the mature cinephile. Yeah. Oh, I know what you mean. I do want to talk about the things I liked in the movie. Yeah, I like the way the characters were built up. I like the presentation of everybody. And because the movie keeps everybody kind of at arm's length and you're kind of, it's almost like peering in through a window. I mean, that's really how it feels. Um, because of that, everybody's on an equal playing field. So, so in characters you kind of get invested in, like everybody kind of comes out at the end is like, I feel like I understand these people but only based on how I think they feel, which makes it more human. Like I'm able to connect with them in that way because I'm like, gosh, this was me. This is how I'd feel. And they act according to that. So it makes sense. Like in a way, a lot of, a lot of the actions that take place here are logical. And I was able to connect with the characters because of that. I was able to make a lot of presumptions about what characters would do and why they would do it. And then they did those things. And it's like, okay, yeah. well, I get why that would happen. I get why this guy wouldn't want to talk to this girl anymore. It doesn't make it right, but I understand it. It doesn't have to tell me. And that's one of the great things about bold cinema. When you, you movie doesn't have to spell it out for you. It expects you to figure it out. It says, no, 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 I'm going to show it to you. And you got to figure it out yourself. I love it when that happens. And this movie does that a lot. It's engaging. <laughs> yeah, there there is a lot of um, symbolism, and there's a lot of that I'm still trying to unwrap and figure out. So one scene that's repeated several, probably ten times through the film is a car pulling into this garage or kind of driveway that to the house, and this happens. I mean, probably ten times we see this hallway. And it's very significant. And I don't want to talk about what I think it means uh, on the on the show just yet. We'll save it for after. But it gives you a lot to think about because there's other stuff I haven't figured out. Like it, we keep seeing this motif of airplanes that fly overhead, and I haven't really thought about it enough to figure out what that means too. And that's what I love that that the film challenges me to think about like, well, what's that mean, and what's that say, and also how a lot of what it's trying to say can only be said through cinema. Like you understand it like you would a language. And it's difficult to explain, or you can explain it to someone, but 
you have to see it to kind kind of know. So th- there's a lot to unpack there once it gets going. Um, but yeah, it it is definitely very challenging. Yeah, there there's a running theme of things seen on screen and like shows or movies that these characters watch, where like other things are happening in this world, and, and they're looking at them. There's a running theme of uh, dog. Dog, dog shit, frankly, uh, yeah. in, in a house <laughs> yeah. with two maids. And there's constant. this is constantly a problem, and it's never addressed. Uh, there's this this car that keeps getting beat up over the course of the movie that just... There, there, yeah. There's this great thing where, on the one hand, there will be riots and murder in the street, and then in the next scene, there will be a parade with nobody watching it, just a marching band that comes marching through a scene. It, it's it's something, and I don't know what it all means. And like you said, I, I'd love to, to get a deeper look at it. Maybe not watch it again because it it's not really <laughs> my speed, but there's something there. And just like Suspiria or any other movie we watch this year that we, that we proclaimed as bold cinema, like it's there if you want to go looking for it. And if not, you can take it at surface level and step back and say, hey, I ate my vegetables. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to I, – I definitely want to watch this again because now that I've seen it, I know what it's about. I know – you know, it. I think it's it's got some really brilliant moments, and I know to look for those. And because, like I said, I probably missed some important stuff in that first 30, 40 minutes that it took me to really get in into the movie. And so, I definitely, I'll probably wait a, a couple of weeks, but I definitely want to do another screening. And I would love to see this in the theater. You know, more so than even the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I, I feel like the theatrical experience would be much better. I'm going to hit you with some rapid-fire things about presentation because, yeah, I, I agree. First, uh, the music, or the sound, I should say. Secondly, the look. And third, the presentation of it in the theater. And I think I can wrap these all up in a tight bow so that you can cover them here following me. First, okay. uh, you mentioned the stereo mix. Uh, I watched this with surround sound stereo headphones on. If you're going to watch it at home, strongly encouraged. Or have a great sound system. You don't have to. Um, but man, like with headphones, there's there's a lot to it, like the panning and kind of the way that somebody's off screen and the camera turns over to them and like their sound drifts into your headphones, like into the room you're in. Like that was all very consistent and, and great in its presentation. Oh, wow. Really impressed, yeah, with, with how that all worked. And there's a lot of slow pans in this movie, so be ready for those. Uh, the look of it, it's in black and white. That scares a lot of people. It shouldn't scare you because it looks great. It's you know, so it, sharp. It's so sharp and you get so many cool like gradients of black and white in there though it does hurt the vibrance of the movie because again if you're already falling asleep not having any colors to look at isn't gonna help you but it does look great for what it's worth and the presentation this is on netflix and not in a theater not only should it be seen in a theater but i do I know it's a pet project for Quran. I think that's the only reason why he bothered putting it on Netflix because he was worried about the pre- like the presentation in wider cinemas yeah. and how many people would go see it. That ultimately hurts it. Whereas something like The Ballad of Buster Scruggs I thought was worth putting on Netflix. This one, maybe not. This might have been an art house thing. This should have been at the Texas Theater. This should have been at, this should have been at the Angelica. So mm-hmm. sound, uh, look, and and presentation. Andy, what do you think? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I'll start with the black and white. So it is super sharp and crisp black and white because a lot of times people think of old and grainy and even even like uh, last week's Schindler's List, which is in black and white, looks much different because it's 25 years old. Mm. But this and, you know, I've seen things like Logan in black and white, Mad Max. I watched the the black and chrome black edition, and which chrome is in black. Yeah. Yeah, so those are, are super, it's high def and it's really sharp and it, it gives a different kind of texture and feel to the movie. And this is what this has. Um, 
as far as uh, the sound, so I, I just have like a sound bar, so I didn't get a lot of that panning and that like sound coming from outside of a room to inside of the room. So that's really cool, and that's something I would like to experience in the theater. And again, and again, the presentation is really really important, I think, to enjoying and focusing on the film. The other thing I wanted to touch on is that the subtitles, and I've never seen this before, the subtitles move. Um, to differ to different places on the screen depending on where you should look because generally subtitles are always in the center of the screen but in this movie sometimes they're on the right sometimes they're on the left and they're right under where you should be looking which I've never seen done before and that's that's really brilliant because sometimes characters are off on the left side of the screen or the right and that's exactly where you'll find the subtitles so like the attention to detail is is just really incredible I also really enjoyed at the very beginning. I actually stopped it. Uh, Christine didn't watch it with me, but she was in the room when I started the movie. And uh, I stopped it right at the beginning because all of the title cards and end credits are entirely in Spanish. Um, and there's a title card right before we get our opening shot of the film that explains the subtitles that I thought was really neat. It's a Spanish subtitles are presented this way. Um, Mexican, I think. Mexitec. Mexitec is presented in this way. All others are all, all other languages not presented in subtitles. Um, interesting, and I thought that was really neat. That was a, a really cool way to be like, "Hey, here's essentially a set of rules before the movie starts." Like, it's it's that's cool. Like that, that's it's really unique. And he didn't have to do that. He could have just not done that, and the movie still would have worked. It yeah. means something. It, yeah. Yeah, and you probably can't necessarily hear the difference between those two dialects, but you know you notice when it's used. Like the Mexitec is used between the two maids. It's it's looked at probably as kind of a lower class language, and then Spanish is just the the kind of what everyone else uses. And so the, it it lets you know when the maids are using their cho- you know favored like language versus everyone else. And it gives you context in the world of the film because when they're talking, you know nobody else in the room can understand them which is neat and they can understand everybody else. Again, it's that, it's that fly on the wall thing, which again, I think is a running motif in the film though. I'm not sure exactly how, um, yeah. <laughs> Andy, we're just about running out of time. Any other thoughts before we move on to recommendations? Uh, one last piece of symbolism for people to think about is this motif of water. Um, we see it at the very beginning of the film, it, it opens with a floor being, being washed. Um, and then we see, Different, we see it pop up. I don't want to talk too much else before, but if um, if you're going to watch it, be sure to pay attention to the use of water and kind of try and figure out what it means. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, just a subtle filmmaking thing that I imagine won't go noticed by many, which is part of what makes this movie so charming for me, knowing a little bit about how it's made. Um, there's CGI in this movie. There's actually a bit of CGI in this movie. Uh, right and and it starts in the opening scene uh which is a a very long take which is a a camera looking straight down at the ground with water over it and you can see a reflection of uh some buildings that go up and then the sky and then you see an airplane fly over you can't see the camera so that was cgi like how else would they have gotten that shot it had to be cgi which is super neat uh and and it's it, it helps immerse you in the world of the film and it's one of those things you don't even think about also, uh, the the planes, there's a few of them in the movie that fly over. They have to be CGI. There's no way yeah. they time those scenes around like, okay, well, here's when a plane's flying over. We're going to film it, and it's perfect. They're CGI. But you don't yeah. notice when you're watching it because of the mm-hmm. setting and the color. So it helps make the world feel real. It really feels like they step back into the 70s to make this movie happen. It's really neat. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, what I was saying is, is going to say that the planes look 
not a hundred percent real. And, but I think that's the point. Like you're supposed to realize that that's, it's a, it's like an imagined version or, or something like that. It, it's meant to not look like the real thing. There's a lot going on in Roma. Um, and, and ultimately I'll get to my issues and my recommendation, I guess. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Roma? <laughs> yes, absolutely. With some caveats. Mm. So I, I've more recently become a, of the opinion that if you want people to understand art house, then you got to go see it. And there's no like entry level or beginner level movie. You just got to kind of dive in, but you got to prepare people. So I would absolutely recommend this movie to everyone, but you have to know it is long. It is slow paced. It is, you know, two hours and 15 minutes. It is in black and white. It is in Spanish. Um, so, it's going to be a challenging film, but it, it is a great movie. And I, th- I think it's, if you're looking to really get, get into cinema and really start to kind of see what a master filmmaker does, this is a really great place to start. And you just have to know what you're going into. And as we've said before, cinema is enjoying cinema is all about expectations. I would recommend this with a lot of caveats. In fact, <laughs> honestly, for, for most viewers of this show, I'd say skip it, which sounds harsh. I know, but I'm not of the same ideology of it's Andy. Too bold. You have yes, to, yeah, right. you have to jump right into art house. I think there are gradients of it. I'd look at something like Mandy or The Favorite. I know they're not quite sure. full on art house, but they're there. Blade Runner 2049 does a lot of stuff like this, but it's just different enough. It's just accessible enough that you can start to dip your toes in. I would argue Godard's Breathless is is more casual than this like this one really leans into it and i'm struggling to understand what it means and that means yeah. you will too it is Film school nerds long will be, will and it, it takes its time and i do think it's worth watching it's like eating your veggies you're right but man the journey to get there and part of the fun i should say of art house like this because we do this so it's not like you can't it's not that's taboo is putting a little salt and pepper on those veggies. Look up a review. Look up a look up an analysis. Like go watch a video essay. Like you might be surprised at how much you get from it when you see somebody else's perspective. Um, but it's important to watch this stuff and formulate your own opinion. I think that makes you a better film viewer. I think it makes you a better audience member. Ultimately, um, it helps you see the world in a different way. And, and that is what Art House is all about, right? Right, that's right. And I would really, uh, for all our female listeners out there, I would really love to get uh, some women's opinions of the film because like i said it centers around uh two three women and their struggles so i would really love to see what uh female opinion is on this film mm, i agree and if you want to write us and let us know what you thought uh email us a mail at offscriptfilmreview.com hit us up on facebook twitter instagram we're around and we're excited to hear what you have to say if you like these movies if you didn't like these movies if you thought the 3d and spider-man was dumb if you think disney movies are totally worth the price of admission. If you thought Mandy should have been in the Oscars, or maybe some other things shouldn't have been, let us know and we'll talk about it. We will be checking email, even though we're not going to be back until January 2nd. That is a Wednesday. We will resume shows normally on Monday following that. Uh, It's just holiday scheduling. You know how it goes. It's fine. Uh, (laughs) We are going to be doing a poll to see what we talk about next because there is a lot that has come out in December that we haven't gotten to see. There's still a couple movies to go that we still want to see. And fortunately for us, January is a pretty slow month. So odds are we'll get to a good chunk of these. But for what it's worth, here's what's coming up that we want to talk about. Here's what we're going to poll for if we can put this many things in a Twitter poll. We got (laughs) Bumblebee. Aquaman, Mary Poppins Returns, Welcome to Marwen, They Shall Not Grow Old, The Mule, and Vice. 
all cool movies. We were talking about what we do really want to see versus what we don't really want to see. We both <laughs> yeah. have a difference of opinion, surprisingly. Uh, so Very let much. us know what you think, and we will uh, get things going. Next, uh, on the second, I should say, we're not actually doing any reviews formally. We're doing our top 10 of the year. We're doing our top one worst of the year. And I also would like to find time to squeeze in uh, January, February, and March of 2019, just to talk about what's coming up, what we're going to do. There's a lot in there. We've never done a show like that before. I can't wait to do it. I've been looking forward to it since the day we started this podcast, a top 10. Um, <laughs> it's going to be so cool. I'm crazy excited about it. You should be excited about it too. So do yourself a solid and hit that sub button. Rate, review, <laughs> subscribe today. Subscribe. Make your friends subscribe. Andy, other, any other thoughts before we close out uh, till, I guess, the end of the year? Yeah, well, for our uh, Twitter poll, what, what's uh, on your top one or two of this list that you Ooh, just okay. uh, rattled off? Uh, I'm particularly excited about seeing The Mule. And, man, I was stoked on Vice, but I've been reading some things lately that seem to be pretty divisive. So... I, honestly, I'm I'm kind of excited to see Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, <laughs> I like the original a lot. I, I, there's a lot that the original did that was really neat. Uh, uh, combined animation and special effects. Like uh, there's there's a lot that was cool about it. Great performances. This may not be that movie, um, but I'm interested to see how Disney kind of follows that. We were just talking about Disney producing a sequel instead of a remake. Here you go. That's what this yeah. is. So uh, that's what I'm particularly stoked on. How about you? Um, I definitely have a soft spot for Welcome to Marwin. And I do still want to see Vice and, uh, of course, this uh, new Peter Jackson's new documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, about World War One. If you can see this movie, really, really get out there because there's only like one or two screenings uh, f- this year, one or two days. I think yeah. today is one of them. So we have one more day, which I think is December 27th, to try to find a screening of They Shall Not Grow Old. They Shall Not Grow Old feels like one of those movies that you're never going to see a screening of, and the next time you see it, it'll be in the Criterion Collection for $45 on Blu-ray. And you'll be like, well, now I'm never going to see it. Like It looks yeah. really neat, and I want to see it. I just don't know how. But hopefully we can find a time somewhere. So any other thoughts for the end of the year? I think we're ready. Um. All right. Well, I guess we'll talk about our year in review on January 2nd. So stay tuned for that. From all of us here at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.